0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Okay. Tonight we're looking at a word that should be incredibly familiar. It's probably one of the few uh, Sanskrit Pali words that's more familiar to people than Karma. What could be more familiar to people than the word karma, right? I don't know if there's a, if there's even another word. Maybe Buddha. Is Buddha more familiar to people than karma? It's up there, but this one's definitely in in the running. Yoga. Yoga's a well-known word, right? I thing is po- most people don't know, don't have a clue what the word yoga means. Yoga is an interesting word. It appears to be one of those few words that um, is actually the same in Pali and English, or not the same, but has a has a very close cognate. Yoga. What does yoga sound like? What English word does yoga sound like? Yoke. Yoga sounds like yoke. Not the egg variety, but the other kind of yoke. The yoke that we don't we don't actually um, we don't use that much in English. Some people, I assume, are not very familiar with this word. A yoke. A yoke is the thing that um, you put on the shoulders of an ox. I'm not familiar with it actually all that much, but I know it more from uh, from Buddhism than anywhere. But a yoke, someone is yoked, an ox is yoked to a cart. A yoke is something that you put on the shoulders and it. It's what, uh, because the, the ox would have big shoulders, that was enough to get them to pull the cart put this on their shoulders so whether that's the original meaning or not that's one of the meanings another meaning is bondage a bond right it's the same idea right a yoke is something that ties you but it ends up being used for bondage like when you're attached to something. And so in Buddhism, there are four yogas, and they're not good things. Yoga is not necessarily a good thing. Now, I don't know much about the tradition of modern yoga, but uh, where it comes from, but I guess my understanding is that a yoga in a good sense means being bound to something, being um, kind of like dharma, actually. Dharma means t- keeping a code. That's how it was used in the time of the Buddha. Everyone had their dharma. Warriors had their dharma. The Brahmins had their dharma. It was a code that they lived by. So yoga is something that you—it's like a regimen or a schedule, right? A prescription where someone has a, a, a training schedule, weightlifting or exercising or anything that they were tied to. So yoga was one exercise one type of regimen of exercise that I guess became spiritual or whatever, kind of like tai chi or something, something that you do, people who practice karate, they stick by it, so they're bound to it, but the four yogas in Buddhism are something quite different, They refer, actually, to things that, that, that bind us, the ties that bind. But there are things that keep us, hold us back, keep us ensnared, that have a pull on us. Keep us from being free, you know? You want to be free at peace? to not be subject to... forces that can lead you to suffer I guess the real problem with bondage is that you're you're subject to the uh, the external force in it you're tied down you're not free and when you get tied to something then you're stuck with it you're stuck with whatever comes along with it. And so the four yogas are Kama Yoga So in Shumaya, of course, what's the biggest bondage That we can think of in Buddhism Is Kama, which means sensuality Sensual bondage is an is a incredible force Number two, Bhava Yoga Bhava means existence Number three, diti Yoga the bondage of views. And number four, avijja yoga, the bondage of ignorance. And this is an important teaching, especially for meditators. So listen up. The sutta goes on in a way that I'm I'm not, I'm going to rather try to explain these things in a way that the sutta doesn't, but they can... Talk a little bit about what the sutta says, or start with there. The, the sutta explains the problem, and and the reason why we're bound to these things is is based on a formula that we've already heard recently. The three aspects of of uh, any kind of attachment, which I've talked about quite recently: the gratification, the danger, and the escape. So there's a gratification that comes with each of these, there's a danger to each of them, and there's an escape from each of them, and understanding these three is important, it's important to understand the gratification of each of these, but then it's also important to see the danger, some people see only the gratification. and the, seeing the danger of course isn't enough you have to also once you see the danger you have to realize it's worth escaping and find the escape that's a true understanding of me. But let's explain what they are so the bond of sensuality is of course fairly self-evident uh, maybe the strength of it really isn't we don't realize how tied we are to the things that we love the things that we like when a, when a loved one dies or leaves, or betrays us, or even acts in a way that's un- undesirable. You know. and then, we see some of the problem. We see how strong is our attachment. We say there's a fine line between love and hate, and it's really because, when you love someone, well, the word, the word, love. We use this word to describe our attachments to people, and our attachments are to just that, beings or people. And a person isn't something that exists. A person is a concept that we have in our minds, based on the experiences that we have surrounding the other individual. But we build up, that individual is just made of momentary experiences, uh, momentary events seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking and we cling instead to the idea of that person and when we have this idea any time that it's not actually in line with the truth of that individual we suffer you know, they do something we don't like they say something we don't like or they just leave or they die you know, it's not that's not what we love about that person right? The things we love about people mostly have to do with them being alive, mostly. So when they die, that's, or when they disappear, most of the things we love about them have to do with them being present. That's a good example of how, how, we, you know, how strongly we cling. But we cling to so many things. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, feelings, thoughts cling to all of our experiences and they're habitual you can't cling and say well I'm going to like it but not cling to it the more you like something the more it builds up in your mind until you need it you you feel uncomfortable without it and you're bound to it you find yourself crazy about these things you need it Karma yoga, Bhava yoga is Bhava yoga is a bit different, but we're bound to it nonetheless. It's existence. So existence means being bound to something being, or to being something. We're bound to the ideas, to ideas mostly. If you're famous, you get caught up in the idea of being famous. It's pleasant to you. If you have a rank, you get caught up in the rank If you have a job, you're caught up in the job If you want a promotion, you get caught up in the idea of a promotion You get caught up in ideas of things the existence, being something Wanting to be this, wanting to be that Wanting to be born in heaven It's a big one for Buddhists Many Buddhists become caught up in the idea of being reborn in heaven of course, that also has to do with sensuality, we get caught up in the idea of um, being a man, being a woman, being a monk, being a teacher, being a doctor, being a lawyer, being a president or uh, the head of something, something else. We also get caught up in ideas of existence that we don't like, being something that we don't like, being too short, being too tall. Being poor, being being something, being a man, being a woman. Some men want to be women, some women want to be men. We're caught up in being. Not liking our being, liking our being, attached to it. Really attached to who we are. Number two, Number three: Ditti Yoga. Ditti is any type of view. We get caught up in our beliefs. Beliefs are an incredible bond. They tie you down. You See this in meditation? Someone who comes into meditation with strong beliefs that are counter to meditation practice, like, there is a soul, uh, there is a God who who, deli- who brings us deliverance." They can't really progress in meditation. And they think that there's an all-powerful being out there who's going to save them. They can, potentially. but seem to have incredible difficulty because they're not really concerned about their problems. It's okay, because when we die, God saves us. Well, the idea of a soul makes it very difficult to break your soul up into what really exists. A belief in... Uh, Belief in things like the the inefficacy of karma, the idea that there is no results to our deeds—you can do lots of evil things and nothing bad happens to you—that's incredible. Uh, slavery, You become enslaved, and it's a, it's a terrifying prospect. The views that. There's no need to be grateful to those who have helped you, like your father or your mother, if your father and mother have you know, actually raised you and cared for you. Your views, they get you caught up in, in great difficulty. Your mind becomes quite coarse through your views, the belief that we only live once, that when we die there's nothing. It's quite an enslaving view because it gets you it, it removes so much potential if that were, if that were the view then, then what would you do so, actually if you, if you there's more to that view usually than just that because the truth is it's still more more pleasant to be a good person but most people don't take it that way if they take it as an opportunity to do all sorts of evil and debauch and undertake great debauchery because there's no consequences of course there are worldly consequences even in this life but nonetheless our views, our beliefs enslave us Our views and beliefs, you know, views and beliefs that are cultural as well. Uh, views about marriage. Views about uh, gender roles. Views about races. Human, the, the various different types of human beings. Views about your country and lots of different views views about, about your role as a father, a mother a son, a daughter you get you really tied up unless you're able to see the truth the views can be quite dangerous because when they're not in line with reality they get you in quite a bit of trouble and reality rears its ugly head number three and number four mm-hmm. avidya yoga The bondage that is ignorance This is a clever one, I don't think Uh, I suppose it is talked about outside of Buddhism But it's an important one The real bondage is just ignorance This is really the key in Buddhism If we but knew All of these things If we but knew the truth There would be no bondage There would be no clinging there would be no greed, no anger. There would be no war, no conflict. There would be no attachment or addiction. There would be no hatred or. There would be no suffering. There would be no suffering. It's a key in Buddhism. It's a quite a claim, really, and it doesn't. It's not self-evident because we're so ignorant. But suffering only comes because of our reactions. You can't suffer unless you get upset about something. If you can completely be free from that, so that you see things just as they are, and you see through your reactions, you see the endangering, all these reactions to things, then you stop you stop reacting, you see that nothing's worth clinging to, nothing's worth getting upset about. If and when you can finally see things as they are, as just coming and going and not worth clinging to. There's no suffering. That's what we try to do in meditation, right? Try to see things as they are. So we don't react. That's basically it. Teach ourselves a new way, a way of being it isn't reactionary, it's just at peace, natural, seeing things as they are. So those are the four, I won't go into any more detail, that's enough, the four yogas, not good, those are the four problems, our practice is about overcoming all four of these. So that's the Dhamma for tonight. Two new meditators here, which means we have three altogether because Kung is still here. But uh, Mark is here from the UK. Right? Okay. You can go ahead. uh, For the questions, I don't have meditators today because it's usually pretty broad-based. Okay, let's get back to our broadcast here. We're broadcasting. Hopefully everything's going well. Let's turn on Robin's audio. Check out our live dashboard. We've got a bunch of chatting. Ready for questions, Never sure if I'm going to regret looking at the YouTube comments. Uh. All right, go for it
1: hi how do i log in my meditation sessions i think that was probably just meant for the youtube or the uh the meditation community but
0: hopefully it wasn't already answered let's see that's no, okay um i mean there's it's pretty easy yeah, it's you have to log in and then there's
1: it is yeah I just look at the bottom of the screen and there's a place to type in your minutes of walking and sitting
0: on the meditation tab you have to get out of the chat yes.
1: yes when focusing on an object is it necessary to observe all the details or is just noting the existence experience of it enough
0: good question i mean i, I do answer this quite well i've answered this recently but um you're actually not supposed to observe the details. I mean, if you're aware of the details, don't don't pay attention to them. Nanimita gahi gahi. Anubhyanjana means details. Don't grasp at them. Just see things as they are. The details are what gets you in the pro- into difficulty. Seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. Keep it simple. Or just remind yourself that is seeing. Say to yourself, seeing, seeing.
1: some of the imperfections of insight seem identical to some of the seven awakening factors. Is this because the awakening factors are signs we are practicing correctly and should not be purposefully developed, accepting mindfulness, persistence, and possibly analysis of qualities?
0: No, it's that these things can lead you when they get strong, right? Like uh, mindfulness, the word is... um Upatana, I think. But uh, the idea there is that it's strong mindfulness. Your mindfulness gets good, and it leads you to negligence very easily. You say, oh, I'm doing very well, and you get kind of confident. And because you get confident, you stop being mindful. And you can easily get caught up in that. Um, adimoka, so confidence. I think I uh, know Adimoka. When I Moka and thank you know, many confidence is one of them, so you have great confidence, which is a good thing. but it becomes obsessive, so not obsessive, but you get caught up in it. The point is even good things, these are all good things. Actually, all ten of the even Obasa, all of these are are positive, a sign that your mind is focusing, but you get caught up in them, and you stop practicing. You stop practicing based on any good thing that comes up. Like, like with mindfulness, when it gets very strong, you maybe start noting quicker and quicker. We had one meditator recently who did that, and he, he didn't know you know, where to go next. He said, I'm getting so quick, how do I... You know, but he wasn't really being mindful anymore. He was caught up in the fact that he was so good at it. It's a subtle thing. Eventually, you realize that you have to be, you know, balanced, moderate, natural about it. Don't get caught up in any even good thing.
1: My brother is a psychoanalyst, and sometimes he questions me why meditation would work. Would studying Abhidhamma give me some theoretical background to justify the mechanics of meditation?
0: Yeah, I don't know if you have to go that far. You might just get... Lost if you study Abhidhamma. Um, well, maybe. I mean, I guess. I, I guess psychoanalyst. Um, I mean, it's quite simple. We react to things. Our natural progression is to experience something, and then judge it. And it's our judgments that cause problems. When you get angry, it creates stress. When you're greedy, you want things, it creates stress, addiction, and we're confused about them. But when you start to remind yourself, this is this, and you start to see things just as they are, you, you develop this habit of seeing things objectively. And when you see things objectively, your mind is much clearer, and you're able to learn things about reality that uh, are otherwise hidden, hidden by the cloud of greed and anger and delusion. It's quite simple. Whether he agrees with that or believes that is totally up to him, but it works, you know. Which you can say to them something simple like that and then say, if he says, yeah, how how could that work? I say, you know, I mean, we can argue back and forth, but it works. You try it and 100% guarantee there's absolutely no chance that it wouldn't work. I mean, how far it works is another thing. Whether someone can actually take it to enlightenment is completely up to them. But there's no question that it makes your mind clear.
1: Hello, Bhante. When being mindful in my daily life, I often find myself struggling to find a mantra for the experience that arises. Should we try to find a mantra that describes the experience the most accurate, or should we notice it on a more basic level? For instance, when I wash my hands and dry them with a towel afterwards, should I notice that as feeling, feeling, or washing, washing, and drying, drying? Thank you.
0: It's fine to say washing, washing, drying, drying. Scrubbing might be more uh, washing is fine, I suppose. Brushing, maybe with washing, and moving, moving. Yes, yeah, uh, drying, drying is fine. I mean it's just something objective because there's nothing subjective. It's not a judgment to say you're drying, right? Oh, that's very drying of you. No, it's, uh, drying is objective. It's just a thing, so that's fine. You can call this movement. And you know, the Buddha did this when walking. He said walking. Now walking isn't really what's going on. It's just a feeling, right? It's a physical sensation, but that physical sensation we call walking so uh, uh, washing washing drying drying is fine there are certain cases where you might want to be a little more uh, oops it uh, erased one huh. yeah I lost one there Robin. I clicked and it clicked and destroyed two of them how do I unanswer a question
1: not sure. I can't. Uh, what's, once we get through the ones that are here, I'll go back and look for answered ones that don't look familiar.
0: Did you see uh, Edits?
1: I still see Edits.
0: Okay, it's gone for me. It's answered. Oh, okay. Go for it.
1: How do we, how do we stop comparing ourselves to others? We live so differently, and everyone has their own experience. We have no real reason to compare, but yet we are still doing it. Why?
0: Well, you can't stop your habits. I mean, this question—this is the, the answer—is the same to any question like this. You I mean, just, you know, you you come to see that it's not useful to do that. Your judgment that you don't want to compare people, compare yourself to others, isn't all that helpful. Except that it might spur you to meditate more. But um, the reason we, how we stop, is you know, through changing the habits by seeing that it's a cause for stress and suffering to compare ourselves to others. It's conceit. I mean, it's a very deep-rooted defilement. Why we do it? It's a very deep-seated habit because we like certain things and we dislike certain things and we get caught up in identifying with things we feel good about the idea of being better or we're worried that we're not as good Right? we have it drilled into us that we have to be something our parents tell us we have to be something society tells us and when we're not or when we see someone else we feel like maybe we're a failure and there's lots of forces that work together to create low self-esteem high self-esteem, conceit Delusion. In the end, it's all ignorance and delusion.
1: I I tend to resist calling myself a Buddhist because I'm afraid I might do some bad deed and then make people think Buddhists are hypocrites or that meditation doesn't work. Any thoughts on that?
0: Uh, It's maybe overthinking things a little bit.
1: Oh, I think that's an excellent question.
0: I don't know, I mean, calling yourself Buddhist is, right? You want to be a good example, no?
1: I mean, it just, you know, from the perspective of someone who's in an area where there aren't a lot of Buddhists, mm. maybe a, a Buddhist is the only Buddhist that any other, you know, that anyone who knows them.
0: Mm.
1: I don't think I said that right, but I think you know what I mean. If you're the only Buddhist that your community knows, it's such a, it feels like such a responsibility.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess my initial reaction is don't take on that responsibility. Call yourself Buddhist and be happy about it. But then I think, oh, I guess what you're saying—I can see what you're saying—is you're talking about how you relate to others. So it is all about that. So the question is, why? What would be the reasons for calling yourself Buddhist? And and one of them, of course, is to um, promote Buddhism, right? And then if you're not a good Buddhist, then you're not really promoting Buddhism. So it is a good question, I, I, I get it. I mean, I guess, I guess it's just my initial reaction is, um, what are you going to do, lie or, or pretend that you're not? No. If anything, the opposite would be true, is that calling yourself Buddhist pushes you to be a better person, right? because you, you don't want to let the Buddha down. If you didn't call yourself Buddhist, it would just be an excuse to do whatever you want in that sense, going by your argument. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Calling yourself Buddhist is a good thing, because it reminds you of what you're doing. and It, it lets people, at the very least, hear about Hear about the existence of such people who take on the teachings of a fully enlightened being and come and work to, in their own ways, work to free themselves from suffering.
1: I guess just to add in, my, you know, my own question because I I really like, I really like that question, but it's not even just calling yourself Buddhist, but you know knowing that you may be the only example to someone you know just worrying that well, what if i lose my temper what if mm-hmm, i mm-hmm. you know do something that seems very un-buddhist i mean what you know it just feels like such a a great responsibility
0: which can be a what good thing I, you know it, it keeps so. you it keeps you on the straight and narrow because you're concerned yeah it's not necessarily a bad thing
1: true Hello Banthe. Hello Robin. I'm having a hard time with the ego. I now see it rising so I'm able to stop the wanting to control. I get angry at myself as if I'm not believing in non-self. Is there a practice to clearly see that there is nothing intrinsically good with ego, like it is in the case for sensual compulsions where one is able to identify the object for what it is through meditation? Thank you.
0: No, I mean, insight meditation is the one that overcomes delusion. Ego is a part of delusion. Greed and anger can be tempered with things like love and um, the loathsomeness of the body, that kind of thing. But delusion can only be countered through insight meditation. I mean, you could probably argue that study would help. Some people who study the Abhidhamma, they claim, and, and, and I tend to think it's true that they tend to be less egotistical um, I found that people who study Abhidhamma tend to be really nice people so if you study the Buddha's teaching a lot you can get warped as a result and you know, caught up in thinking too much but it does tend to help your your delusion I would say but it's you know that's just a, it's it's a very weak practice. So if you're looking for something, studying is probably helpful. Oh, and then someone comes back and argues, count, a counter-argument that studying you can get very conceited about study. I tend not to think so. I tend to think that someone who studies, I don't know, it's not a surefire. It's not it's not enough. The only real solution is insight meditation. I would tend to think that studying the Buddhist teaching would help. Maybe wrong.
1: When I've been thinking, thinking, we catch it after several paces or minutes? Do I note thinking, thinking, or is it too late? Thank you, Bante
0: knowing might be better just knowing that because at that moment there's a knowing that you were thinking there's an awareness that you were thinking a realization so it's either realizing or knowing you're just being aware of the actual realization that you were thinking is probably better you could still say thinking because again you're just reaffirming that that's all it was and not reacting to it but um knowing is usually better in that instant.
1: What makes up someone's personality?
0: Habits, habits, and and also uh, physical traits, which don't all have to do with habits. Genes, that kind of thing, you know, your genetic makeup will, I would say, have an effect on certain aspects of your your personality. Or how you know, because personality is very much how others see you, rather than actually how you are. So your manner of speech, your facial expressions, your um, physical features are how people know you. Sometimes your body weight, your height, color of your hair, color of your eyes. So there's many things because personality is not real. It's it's. Um, how other people see you or how you see yourself. But uh, but the real person, you know, the deep stuff is all habits. Your habits of partiality and aversion and your defilement and your good things and your bad things, your wisdom, your ignorance, all of that.
1: Hi Yudhidhamma Bhikkhu, are you really this peaceful or is this just an act, act for your channel? If so, what gives you this peace and tranquility?
0: I'm not, I'm not allowed to answer these. I mean, I don't answer these questions, but it's not appropriate. Um, <laughs> it's kind of uh, But it's a serious accusation, you know? something to be take to to. Do I put on an act for these things? I try to be very mindful when teaching I think that's important because it's easy to get lost and it's an interesting revelation that um, when you're mindful when you're actually meditating even when you're talking when you're teaching if you apply the meditation technique, it calms you down you're no longer worried or anxious uh, you know like getting in, up in front of a hundred people or there are teachers who teach in front of a thousand people, but getting up on a stage in front of a hundred people, it's quite an experience. And I was doing that when I was like twenty-five, maybe, and even before that, but really started when I was twenty-five. My, I'll, I'll never forget this one talk I had to give, it was pretty awful. But I gave a talk in front of the whole city of Chiang Mai, basically. Not the whole city, but a great number of Buddhists. There were hundreds. I don't know how many hundreds, I don't really know, but it was huge. And I gave a pretty awful talk. Because uh, it was in Thai, I had to give this talk in Thai, right? But, but the point is, um, mindfulness helps. And so that's you know something that... The other thing is you're kind of hyper-aware. You know, people are watching you. So you want to be on your best behavior there's sort of a a when you're in your room or alone or out in the forest there's not that reminder it's like why meditation in groups works so much better because people are aware there's there's other people watching them potentially and so it keeps you on your best behavior so I wouldn't say I'm always like exactly like this but uh, then again we're all we're all just conglomerates of aggregates of habit and experience so we're not the same from one day to the next and I've had people criticize my my the way I am on the you know boy you seem depressed you seem sad you seem this that and the other thing arrogant I had one guy call me a spoiled brat recently so uh, I mean, we're, not, we're not all the same, and, and people's perception of us is another thing. It's easy to perceive someone as, as something. Anyway, I'm not going to go into much more detail about that.
1: What to do when the breath disappears after meditating on the stomach for a while. Eventually it vanishes and a bright, warm, bright light comes in behind my eyelids. I'm not sure what to do after that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the disappearing has a lot to do with the warm, bright light. And uh, that's something that will distract you and take your mind into another plane, at which point you should say to yourself, seeing, seeing. It's quite simple. You would just say, seeing, seeing, until it goes away. And once it goes away, you'll find that ordinary experiences like watching the stomach come back. If you like the bright light, you should say, liking, liking. If you feel calm, which is a good one that people usually are, are often... Uh, fail to, to note, and you should not calm, calm, or quiet, quiet, okay.
1: Since I've started meditating, the world started to look like a dream. Is that what they call maya, the world of illusion?
0: Uh, maya is an idea that the whole world is an illusion, that this isn't really happening. Uh, That's different from Buddhism, which says this is happening, but the underlying happening is much simpler than it appears. So it's not that you look at me, it's not that I don't exist, it's that the eye is quite simpler, it's not really a monk or a being. It's just experiences, actually it's just light touching your eye right now, and sound waves touching your ear, that's what's real. So this is real, it's not maya, but what you're probably experiencing, or what a meditator in this tradition would experience, is the breakdown of all those concepts, like people, places, things, entities would start to disappear. Even their own body, they would sit and their body would be like it wasn't even there. Because it isn't. The body is just a concept. But it's not exactly like Maya, which is a Hindu concept. Although we have the word Maya, but Maya in Buddhism means uh, deception, where you deceive someone when you're a deceptive sort of person. That's a, It's actually defilement a bad mind state.
1: Good evening Bhante. When I'm meditating in the woods or park at my university, ants and spiders crawl on my legs and feet. How would I avoid being distracted by them? Thank you.
0: Well, it's it's not a problem to be just quote-unquote distracted by something. It's just are you mindful of it? At that point you can do Spider crawling meditation, feeling, feeling, if they bite you, you could do biting meditation, pain, pain. If they're fire ants, well, then you've got a real good meditation to focus on. Fire ants are probably a fairly um, potent meditation object. Either that or sit somewhere that so that the ants and spiders don't crawl on your feet. I mean, Meditating on an ant till is probably a bad idea. But the odd ant or spider, well, it's just a meditation, it's just an experience, a sensation. Say feeling, feeling. If you like it or dislike it, you say liking or disliking. I remember meditating my first meditation course, it was really a powerful experience because of course I used to kill mosquitoes. Most people do. And uh, I was told to, to meditate outside, and stupid me, I meditated right beside my hut where there was this sort of ditch with water in it and tons of mosquitoes. I didn't think to go and find a place where there were no mosquitoes, but I knew they were going to come, and I thought, well, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. I, I was really kind of dumb about the whole thing. My teacher thought so anyway. He <laughs> why did not you go find a place where there were no mosquitoes? But I sat there, and I, sure enough, I knew they were coming and my body was so tense and one mosquito landed on my shoulder another one I counted about five or six and by the time the fifth one came I was noting, feeling, feeling and disliking, disliking tense, tense and then suddenly my body just let go and it was just this release and I felt so peaceful and so happy and such bliss it was the power of finally doing the right thing and not not vi- being violent you know not in, not reacting with violence to to violence normally we can't stand these sorts of things it was pretty probably a bad idea in, in long term I mean, most people would say you just can't let mosquitoes bite you especially in a in a place where there's you know, danger of malaria for example but uh, spiritually it was an incredible experience that's the kind of experience that is very important where you you find a new way. Because it was very much about no longer killing, no longer being violent. I knew I couldn't kill these mosquitoes. And I said, I'm just shifting into a new way. It was a very powerful experience for me because killing was second nature before that.
1: I've been trying meditation for a couple of years. My mind was wild. Now it's just annoying asking so many questions. I'm left wondering if I will have to reincarnate. I hope not. I used your technique. I burned my finger and I looked at it and said pain, pain, and the pain went away. And not just temporarily. Thank you. I'm sorry, I guess that wasn't actually a question.
0: Mm.
1: But I guess there is a question. Um, Wondering if they will have to reincarnate.
0: I don't really have an answer for that. If you have no defilements, you won't reincarnate. If you have defilements, you will. It's not reincarnate. It'll be reborn and you'll continue on. Life won't end at death. Do you see these two questions? <laughs>
1: did we miss some going through or I see Oh, oh ok these are new sorry mm. can, an, can an enlightened being commit bad de- deeds does this affect their escape from rebirth
0: uh, an arahant cannot intentionally do something that's bad quote unquote bad which means they have no defilements left so as a result they can't do something that would be based on the defilements but uh, a Sotapanna could so a is like someone who's seen Nibbāna but isn't yet free, so they could potentially be reborn.
1: But maybe an enlightened being might do something that might seem like it's bad. We talked in a study group about how, um, oh well, I guess it was about arahants, smile at odd things.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, um, well, like an arahant could kill, but they wouldn't do it consciously like an arahant can step on an ant without seeing the ant. Jakupala is the best example of that. He was doing walking meditation and all these insects died. But he was blind. He didn't he, he had lost his eyesight. So he had no clue what he was doing, what was happening. Manopabangama dhamma it's the mind that is the base.
1: Can an enlightened being go back down to the level of normal human consciousness?
0: No. Why are we getting a question how, Sam? See, if the question is not for me, you don't have to put a Q colon in front of it. Please don't, actually, because it just confuses things. The, The Q colon is for us to be able to filter out, so we only see questions.
1: Yeah, just checking through to see if
0: there's anything
1: that... I don't think we missed any before. I think you're all caught up on things.
0: Well, there's a system where it automatically makes it a question. If you ask a question, it does it like... it changes it. Let's look at this. Is this... Oh, the second time it didn't do it. Is this...
1: Can an enlightened being choose to reincarnate into a body choose to reincarnate into a body again if he chooses to? Thank you, Bante. Good night.